This is another episode of the Los Altos Institute Doctor Who course taught in the spring of 2021 by Stuart Parker, me. Uh, as per usual in our final recordings, the question and answer session is a little choppy as we edit out the voices of members who have requested this service from us. And now, the show. In constructing this course, um, one of the things that I, I try to do is place episodes next to each other where I'd be elaborating a theme that I introduced in the previous episode. So one of the themes that we, um, that we see in the Time Meddler is um, that the doctor is a historical structuralist. That's what we might call him. That the idea... So, and he's a particular sort. So one of the things about the mutants was the idea that each world has its own coercive structure of history. That history will unfold in a place based on a set of rules. And if outside forces try to mess with those rules, really bad things happen. So there's this idea that History is place-based, it unfolds based on local conditions, and it unfolds in a coercive order based on the biological and other structures that are in that world. Um, and so in that way, we can... Um, now, of course, when we watched The Mutants, it was just that Solos was in some way special in that manner. When we go back to the time meddler and we see what the doctor's worldview is in 1965, as opposed to 1972, um, the doctor in 1965 um, sees that rule as applying to all worlds, including the earth. And the fact that history is, uh, needs to unfold in this autochthonous, structural way without intervention, and that that's like the categorical imperative of the universe, um, this is an idea that the doctor doesn't just generalize, he applies it to earth, and he there's no like stirring speech even to justify it. Um, the monk is allowed to give a stirring speech. The meddler is allowed to give a stirring speech about how great the world could be by 1400. But the doctor doesn't even feel the need to rebut it. You know, he dismisses it. He doesn't rebut it. It's, um, it's, a, it's really interesting to see that rhetorically, he just states, well, you're interfering with the structure of history period, one sentence. And then everything else is just, but, oh, what hogwash, 
you know, oh, how ridiculous. Oh, how irresponsible. It's just name calling after that because um, there's an audience on the other side that knows the argument, that learned the argument in school. The argument is hegemonic in 1965. Um, and, you know, the 60s are really the heydays of the heyday of, well, really 1948 to 1968, let's say, is the heyday of structuralist analysis of human society. So one of the things that happens after the Second World War is that America completely remakes its university system um, and uh, produces ways of knowing and kinds of knowledge that have been out there for a while. The disciplines that become really popular in this 1948 to 68 period are disciplines that have been around since the last decade of the 19th century or the first decade of the 20th. They're Franz Boas' anthropology and Max Weber's sociology. And one of the features of these disciplines is that um, they assume that there are big coercive structures that shape cultures. Anthropology, like disciplines preceding it, anthropology will get the memo, but not yet, believe that cultures develop largely in isolation of one another and that difference between cultures is a measure of that isolation. For those of you who took my economic history course, obviously I'm a, I strongly dissent from that view. Difference is typically produced by cultural exchange because people are trying to be different from one another for various reasons. They know they're different and they have to demonstrate that difference. And so we often see, you know, linguistic difference, uh, culinary difference, all of these things. Some of it involves bringing things in, but often you bring in new things from other cultures in order to better demonstrate how different you are. Um, you know, whether that's capsicum peppers in India or maize in East Africa, or, um, you know, that in fact, exchange often produces difference more rapidly than isolation does. But at this time, there's this sense that in fact, we haven't really got over the big eugenicist story that I talked about last episode. So we've recognized that the excesses of eugenics are bad, but we've actually taken most of the ideas from eugenics and incorporated them into other things. So most of the discipline that used to be called eugenics um, comes to be known as public health after the Second World War. So the most concrete and widely used parts of eugenics involving vaccination, chlorination, fluoridation, things like that, are all incorporated into this new field called public health. And many of the sort of eugenicist ideas about each race proceeding on its timeline and that in proceeding in isolation, all you can do is accelerate or decelerate their move down that timeline. A lot of that is still held onto. 
in anthropology and sociology. Anthropologists are still split as to whether we're all becoming the same people. And even the anthropologists who recognize that we weren't the same people as each other at some point in the past, we're not gonna become the same as each other in the future. Those anthropologists nevertheless retain the idea that each people has their own history and it's his, and their history is, in, is unfolding based on their laws and damage is caused when an external force interferes with that. And that's an easy case to make during decolonization because you can see evidence of it everywhere. Uh, you can, and so it's easy to hold on to this idea. If these people had only been allowed to develop on their own, their society would have been harmonious and it would have proceeded down this track. And uh, so even when even anthropologists who emphasize cultural difference and cultural relativism, nevertheless hold on to this idea that cultural difference is a measure of isolation and that isolation is a positive thing. So in, um, so that's part of what's going on. Now I mentioned these disciplines. One of the things that um, happens during, the, um, uh, during this period after the Second World War, the GI Bill changes culture. And in many ways, um, uh, there are critics of the cultural changes the GI Bill brings about through in, in higher education. Uh, one of the most strident critics is J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, but most people don't even understand that Tolkien is criticizing and mocking the effects of the GI Bill in his interactions with people. Basically, Tolkien represents an older academic establishment that suggests that universities are elite places where one learns the classics. The university has been based on the seven liberal arts, which have been handed down from the Stoic movement in Southern Italy for 2,500 years. Universities are small, they're elite. They're not designed to be big or industrial. And new disciplines are not real. Um, if there was no idea that a discipline existed in the 1200s, there's no reason to create it today. And so the lab-centric social science intensive university is anathema to these conservatives. And they attempt to denounce um, what's going on. Um, a lot of J.R.R. Tolkien's interviews about Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings is an endless series of, of precise historical references uh, that beat you over the head, but only if you read Latin and Old English. Uh, and so when people said to Tolkien, well, what are your inspirations? Oh, it all came from the cosmic unconscious, the collective unconscious, you know, as though he's a Jungian, when in fact, like he's a conservative Roman Catholic uh, and asshole. Um, and so, but, every, but what's infuriating, of course, is that nobody recognizes that Tolkien's mocking them. Nobody cares that they don't have these precise pieces of historical data because they think they're studying history in a better way through the social sciences. 
So whereas public health comes into being as a new discipline, um, sociology massively expands, anthropology massively expands, and the disciplines that don't expand are the disciplines where there's an existing professoriate that doesn't agree with this massive expansion. So literature departments work hard to prevent themselves from expanding. Um, and the parts that do expand tend to be parts of literature that are structuralist. The same thing happens to history departments. Old school, old fashioned language intensive history, document intensive history doesn't expand too much. But people who are doing like quantitative history, huge expansion. And so the 1950s and 60s are a period where we go from sort of a eugenic meta-narrative of progress to a more sophisticated um, idea of cultural difference, but that is nevertheless married to the idea that history has a coercive structure and that if you interfere with it, things will go badly. And this is how they're explaining the need to decolonize, which is, of course, a, a huge concern, propagandistically speaking, of the British government at this time. So since 1948, all kinds of people have been educated in these fields. There are vastly more people with bachelor's degrees all of a sudden. And those bachelor's degrees are not conferred evenly by all ideological tendencies in the academy the new degrees have come from the new programs and swamp the old degrees. And so this idea can become hegemonic. Now within that, I want to, um, uh, want to talk about some of the ethics of all this and how anthropology grows up. So Margaret Mead, is a favorite character of mine from the 20th century be, because like Bruno Bettelheim, who I like way too much, um, she was wrong about everything that she was an expert on and right about everything she wasn't. Uh, Margaret Mead's anthropology is all totally discredited uh, today, but um, she created the discipline of semiotics. Um, she convinced Benjamin Spock to recommend um, that the baby schedule breastfeeding rather than the mother. Um, there's this whole list of things that Margaret Mead was very correct about. And it turns out that the previous edition of the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer was partly written by her. Anyway, she's a very strange figure in the 20th century. But in the popular imagination, when people thought about isolated and uncontacted cultures, she is the image that came to mind. Um, Margaret Mead's uh, academic first academic supervisor was Franz Boas the inventor of anthropology. So she and uh, a handful of his other um, key students like Manuel Gamio had a huge impact on the 20th century. So one of the, but we have to look at how she diverged from Boas. Uh, I love Franz Boas work. It's an amazing linguistic achievement. Um, 
Friends Boas went up and down the northwest coast of British Columbia. That's where he did most of his work in developing anthropological method. And he interviewed all sorts of people. But his priority was to interview as many indigenous people as possible. So for that reason, he would often send messengers uh, for people to meet him at a central location to hear their stories. Um, he would visit villages and he would interview as many people as possible and then move quickly to the next village. One of the things we associate Margaret Mead with um, is this methodological shift in the second generation of anthropology to the participant observer position, where you move into the town of your anthropological subject and live among them um, so was to develop relationships of trust. And so uh, Mead lived in um, uh, Samoa and Papua New Guinea in the late 1920s and practiced um, anthropology based on this method. Um, we find today that um, uh, it appears that uh, uh, it did not occur to her that these isolated people that of course she doesn't think are developing ideas about the world outside in the same way that she's developing ideas about them, um, doesn't think that it would be funny, that somebody might occur to, it would be funny to tell people we have this crazy custom or that crazy custom, or we've done this or that. And so Mead is viewed as a credulous observer uh, prone to taking um, what her subjects say literally. And we have to remember that she's a, quite a young person when she's doing this work. She's in her 20s. And by the time she's 30, she leaves the field and spends, you know, she goes, does not one more thing, I think, in the mid 30s. And then um, she spends the rest of her time as an anthropologist, developing the discipline, developing a teaching practice, interpreting the material that she's brought in. And of course, being this major public figure associated with Benjamin Spock and Abraham Maslow and all of these other sort of leading lights of the left liberals of the mid 20th century. So, One of the things, and soon, uh, I mean, and Mead's way of living and working catches on. When we did the Trailer Park Boys course, we finally got to the point where anthropologists realized that they could visit other neighborhoods in their city and live there and learn a lot of stuff. And so, um, but this idea that, but a lot of the justification for this was that having the anthropologist there for a long period was supposed to be less disruptive rather than more disruptive. And I, I think we, we still have some problems with that. Like it's all disruption, so what kind are we creating? But in, but by, in the mid 20th century, the sense was that these embedded participant observer anthropologists were the least disruptive. And yes, they might be pushed into participating in things, but only if their hand was forced. And that is really quite important. So these anthropologists have all these adventures, but to justify their adventure, they have to explain how their hand was forced. 
how they would have caused greater disruption had they not gone along with whatever it was. And it's this discourse, of course, that informs the original Star Trek and the original Doctor Who. You're allowed to intervene, but only if your hand was forced. You're really just there to collect information. And it's just an endless series of bizarre coincidences that you keep intervening. And I think that as cultural relativism continues to ascend in popularity, even as structuralist interpretations of history really recede into the background, um, there's this incredible sense of, of this sort of the sacredness of an autochthonous people and how it has to have been their choice to pull you in, uh, that it can't have been your choice. And it's interesting when we look at original Doctor Who, that really is the position of Hartnell's Doctor. Um, Hartnell's Doctor is to a greater extent than the ones who seem to be having fun. He really is not out looking for the adventure. They really work to make it believable every time he intervenes that his hand was forced. And that recedes in the late 60s. But it's not, um, but of course, Troughton's doctor is then punished for violating this doctrine. And then the idea is that there is some supervisory entity that knows the structure of all history the doctor's people and that they can then authorize intervention. And then, you know, and gradually the, the, the doctor grows more interventionist, but I would, one sec. I'm sorry, I do have to get this one moment. So how, is, how is everybody? Oh, yes, Pretty good. Did. Does can somebody tell me what that word was that I missed? Autochthonous. Autochthonous. What? Anybody know that? Stuart, what is? Hey, Stuart. Yes. What the? You said a word that I didn't understand. Autochthonous people. Autochthonous. So it's a term from. Um, it's a term from um, ancient Greece, or pardon me, classical Greece. Uh, it means that people have grown out of the land, that everywhere there is a people, they have independently arisen separate from all other peoples. So um, we see an echo of this in early primatology with Piltdown Man and Peking Man and all of these attempts to show that the human family is not one big family from a single point of origin but that at each location where there is a civilization, human beings have arisen in a separate way, that um, we're not brothers and sisters, we're cousins at best. Hmm. So, autochthonous. Yeah, autochthonous. Autochthonous. Yeah, right Stuart, also I have a question. Uh, you, you claimed that Mead uh, founded semiotics and... Uh, I don't know. I took a minor in semiotics in university, and uh, she doesn't really come up in semiotics at all. You know, Saussure and others are considered the grand 
grand people who uh, founded it. He's uh, he's disappeared again. He didn't hear your question. Oh no! He'll be right. The reason back. why you see my the reason why you see my picture is because I can't actually look at the screen. I have to I have to look. I have the phone right to my mouth. <sighs> so uh, now he's back. So okay. we retain the. Um... Hey Stuart, Joey yeah. had a Joey had a question. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have a minor in semiotics and, you know, me doesn't come up at all as a founder of semiotics. I mean, it's, you know, Cicer, uh, uh, Fernand de Saussure and so forth uh, that come up as the people. And in, in terms of anthropology, you know, the Ron, the Cook is the key initial text that's structuralist dealing with semiotics. Well, no, uh, um, Mead coined the term. It's not that really? she made an intellectual contribution. It's that she was the first one to label that area of scholarly endeavor in that way. Because hmm. okay. Mead, I mean, Mead's great successes are as a public lecturer on subjects adjacent to anthropology. Okay. So, uh, so I do believe it comes up in a lecture. She does no work to develop the field, um, but um, people still trace it to her. And it's entirely possible that it's a situation of independent generation that um, people coined the term in both French and English and took years to notice. Uh, well, that, they call it semiology in French. Right. Yes, well, it, um, that would make sense then. In any case, um, there is this, although people have dropped the pseudoscience of autochthony, or the succession of pseudosciences of autochthony, there's still very much this idea that these cultures are pristine and their difference must be protected and that exchange will destroy difference because that's what exchange does. Uh, and we can see that that idea of culture um, is only getting stronger. That while we've dropped um, a lot of the, uh, the discourse, um, modern definitions of cultural appropriation, for instance, um, right, that the ability to make art or sing a song or whatever lives in the blood is written on the body must be inherited through birth, um, that, uh, um, and this sense that, um, uh, that uh, everybody is on their own separate path and has to stay in their lane. Now, what's curious is that while the sort of liberal academy has only further intensified that belief, um, as a popular belief, it did not survive. Uh, the liberal academy has grown ever more um, associated with that. And when we look at uh, progressive politics um, at the international level. We see that with the UN enshrining the right of uncontacted peoples to refuse contact in 2009 and the placement of that um, within the purview of the International Criminal Court in 2013. But in terms of popular belief, this couldn't keep animating the show the doctor had to grow more interventionist every season. And we of course see that finally climaxing in 1986. In 1985, the show's canceled. And when the doctor is put on trial 
because the show is on trial for one season to see if they'll be put back on the air. The trial is about the doctor's criteria for intervention and the sense that he's a meddler because he does not wait for an invitation. Um, and the, uh, so the, the argument the doctor makes in the trial of a Time Lord court case, and I'm not doing trial of a Time Lord, and that's why I thought I'd use this episode to talk about trial, because this episode is the start of a conversation that finishes in trial of a Time Lord uh, 21 years later. But the doctor's defense in trial is, yes, I was a meddler in the past, but if you look at my future, you'll see that I grow more, I return to my previous practices of only meddling if my hand is forced. But interestingly, he doesn't say, it's not an if my hand is forced argument. When the doctor has to defend himself in 1986, his argument is that he will only meddle if the person charged with the correct political authority asks him to. Now, of course, that doesn't turn out to be true. The doctor goes right back to his old ways. But I think the reason they have to put that there is to suggest that the Gallifreyans actively believe in political conservatism that not meddling is being conservative and this guy's not being conservative. I'm talking about, of course, 20th century political conservatism, you know, not sort of, you know, Mad Max political conservatism like today. Um, but there's that sense of, so because they can't imagine, because they, they can't sell in 1986, the idea that everybody has an autochthonous history and that the best way for history to work out is to not poke it, to not prod it. And uh, it, uh, so even though that kind of relativism, that kind of anti-interventionism, that kind of idealization of the absence of contact um, continues as an intellectual, as an elite intellectual tendency, it really ceases to be a compelling narrative idea. And I think that's one of the reasons this show interests me the most is that, um, we can see a way in which um, society, the mainstream society was aligned um, with the academic consensus of its day. Uh, a kind of harmony uh, that uh, has eluded us for well over a generation now uh, that um, uh, that the time meddler is of a piece with um, public figures like Margaret Mead, Benjamin Spock, etc., in a way that it won't be at a later point. So um, anyway, I uh, uh, think that that's uh, a lot of what I, I had wanted to say about the time meddler. I think there's there's some interesting stuff I'll, I'll say in a bit about the setting and the role of the clergy in early Doctor Who. Uh, but I think uh, to go a little earlier, I'd, I'd like to hear folks' reactions to, uh, uh, to uh, the time meddler, if we can do a, a, a go around. Uh, Margaret, why don't you lead off? Well, I have to because when I brought up the episodes 
and I got to the end of episode three, they told me I couldn't see episode four without downloading an app. And so I don't know how this all ended and I'm dying to know. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, it was interesting and I'm dying to know what happened. What did the Vikings do? What did the citizens do? I don't know what happened. Right. So, well, this so is excellent. So um, um, we can, uh, uh, who's, uh, who's got synopsizing talents? Um, Michael, can I, can I uh, hand off to you for brief synopsis and then reaction? Don't remember exactly where that cutoff was, but. Um, uh, Just after the Vikings landed. Yeah, so the um, the meddler, you know, wanted to screw with history so that uh, the uh, invasion of 1066 would fail, and uh, the doctor and his two companions sneak into his. Did, did you in episode three was it revealed that the sarcophagus in the church is actually another TARDIS? No. That was an, okay, so it's revealed that the meddler is a time lord. He has a TARDIS. It's the sarcophagus in the church. And they go inside, and the doctor decides to steal some circuitry from his TARDIS uh, to, to fuck with him. And uh, basically, they foil his plan and escape, and he's trapped uh, in the Middle Ages forever. Which is really cruel. He he at one point tells the meddler, "Don't worry, if I feel like you've reformed yourself enough, I shall return and set you free." But uh, of course, he doesn't ever do that. And uh, it's a really kind of like mean <laughs> ending in a way. <laughs> um, there was some nice little special effects. The trick that he pulled with the circuit was to uh, you know how the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than the outside. Yeah. And he yes. took this piece of circuitry that stopped that from working. So when the time meddler came back to his sarcophagus and he opened up this little side door and he peeks in, the inside of the TARDIS has now shrunk down to fit the size of the sarcophagus. So it's a tiny little set and you see his big face at the door, which was kind of cool. But um, yeah, that was, you know, they foiled his plan and left him there to live out his immortal 13 generation life. Wow, I wish I had seen it. Thank you. Well, we'll try and um, I'll, I'll resend episode four to you. Yeah, well, I wouldn't mind just the fourth episode because I've seen the other. Uh, I really did not enjoy this serial at all. It was like the opposite of the mutants. I found it slow and ponderous. Uh, this could have been 45 minutes for the whole thing. Um, I liked the uh, introduction of, I, hadn't, I don't have no memory of Vicky ever being a companion. And I liked her quite a bit. I thought uh, she made a good companion. Uh, Steven's giant swoopy 1960s hairdo I found very entertaining. And uh, I thought they did a pretty good job with the extras and all the other you know, characters. I just found the pacing to be brutally slow and uh, I just wanted to get to the end. But uh, I like the, you know, the supposition they set up about 
whether or not to obey the prime directive. Um, you know, is it a good idea that England achieved railways in the 1300s or whatever that, you know, if, if it wasn't for William the Conqueror, then we would have prevailed, was his argument. And uh, I mean, it's totally insane that never would have happened, but um, it was an interesting idea. Uh, well, um, this that is not canonical. However, the great tragedy of my life when I was 11 was that I had written a 116-page Doctor Who role-playing game manual and um, submitted it to a publisher only to discover that a company called Faza had produced a Doctor Who role-playing game that was truly terrible. However... Um, in the long list of things they do to the canon, they articulate that theory. So that was canonical in the licensed Doctor Who RPG until eventually that license was taken away. Uh, so no, you're not the only one who thinks that, that that hypothesis is probably the single best thing you can say about that RPG. It was really atrocious. Uh, so uh, anyway, go on. <laughs> well, for me, of course, being a broadcast, former broadcast TV editor, uh, the fourth episode was just painful to watch in terms of a technical point of view. Um, it turns out all that exists is a really poor uh, tele, um, uh, kinescope. Uh, there's no original videotape left of any Doctor Who from the 1960s. Anyways, uh, the restoration crew were able to make the, uh, the first three episodes look like video. Uh, they couldn't do that for the fourth, and it looks looks bad. Anyhow, um, for me, being more of a Star Trek fan from the '60s than uh, Doctor Who fan of the 1960s, uh, the fact that how they were breaking the Prime Directive, shall we say, and going in trying to stop you know the Battle of uh, Hastings in 1066 and turning that into a British victory, uh, that that was an interesting play. Because I don't think prior to that, uh, prior to Doctor Who, that was really something that was portrayed in science fiction. I mean, and this predates Star Trek by about a year. So um, actually, I think in terms of time travel stuff, I think it's probably predates Star Trek by about two years. Uh, the City at the Edge for, of Forever, uh, which is, I guess, April of 67. So this is, I think, July or June of 65 when this came out. So, um yeah, in that aspect of it, I think for its time in 1965, it's kind of thought-provoking and um, an interesting concept, even if it's not particularly well executed. But, you know, overall, I mean, uh, I'm generally down on 1960s Doctor Who, especially Hartnell's Doctor Who. Um, and I thought, you know, it wasn't a bad episode. Um, better than the other uh, first Doctor uh, episode that we had to watch. Uh, it's curious, right? In some ways, I think it's because the doctor's insults have to be able to land. Um, that this guy does have to seem careless because on its face, if you don't live in 1965 Britain, the case he's making is quite reasonable. Um, not so much about the technological advance, that would be how people would measure progress at that time, but like the idea that, uh, you know, the Angevins would not entangle England in those wars in France. Like, it's pretty hard to say that, that like, 
the Angevin claim to France uh, was like a positive force in our world. Um, so, yeah. All right. Let's, Edward. Well, it's interesting to see it. It's early in the, we're still teaching history phase of the show with no backstory to our characters really yet. And I think the prime directive sort of works differently if you actually know what the future is or might be. Um, in one way, if you change the future, you change your knowledge. You have to go to skip to the future again to find out what you're supposed to know. Yeah, this is a point that, yes, you that there's an element of mystery that the prime directive in Star Trek contains that the Doctor Who version of it does not. That, uh, uh, that seems And if you have a good. bunch of time meddlers around all making changes, all interfering with each other's changes in history, it can get a little chaotic. Wasn't yeah. there a, cur a more current Doctor Who where that was actually happening? Where there were multiple time changes from different, uh, I might be I might be missing mixing up different uh, science fiction shows, but I, I kind of remember. I thought it was a Doctor Who one where there's like four or five different time species changing stuff randomly, all at the same time. Yeah, I I don't uh, I don't recognize that, so it must have been Star Trek. Uh, Anyway, I'm just going to go to Alana, get her thing, and then we're going to um, then, then we'll, we'll talk to talk about the next thing. Alana, your impression of the show? I, I enjoyed it. I hadn't actually or I don't rem recall having actually seen that one before. Um, and I actually, I actually found it surprisingly fun, although as you say, the extras were a bit um, Monty Python-esque. Uh, I had remembered Vicky, but I had completely forgotten that Stephen never existed as a companion. <laughs> <laughs> like, who's this guy? <laughs> but yeah, they don't really they don't really address how the time meddler fits into the, the greater time lord system. Like, is he is he also a renegade from the time lords? Are they, you know? Sending people out to hunt him down for time crimes. I, like, um, you know, I assume they just hadn't really developed that part of the mythology yet. But uh, yeah, the, the the nobody couldn't. The word time lord is the is introduced in the last storyline of 1969, and weirdly, um, it doesn't come up in the four years between those two things. So this episode happens and what we learn is the doctor appears not to know this guy, but based on his hypothesis about the rate at which his own people's technology is advancing um, by observing the other uh, guy's TARDIS, he figures the guy is uh, left 50 years after he did. Right. So, the, the meddler departed Gallifrey 50 years after the doctor. That's, that's all we get, except there's no Gallifrey, there's no Time Lords, but they are from, they, they are of a people. And it's, um, and what's interesting is that in some ways, 
like you've already started thinking of the doctor as a renegade. Like he's greasy. He makes like deals with people. He probably shouldn't all the time. Um, you know, he's, and he's, he's like, he's got a desperation to him. The older, the other doctors don't, right? He's greasy and desperate. And so Hartnell's portrayal itself from playing villains his entire career until 1963 um, is of a guy on the run. A bunch of that doesn't even have to be scripted. It's just Hartnell's acting instincts. And it turns out that Hartnell was a petty criminal before he turned to acting. He was just <laughs> less successful as a petty criminal than as an actor. Um, I did so, not know that. That is delightful. Yeah, no, he like he like robbed people um, and uh, swindled people for small amounts of money. And then, you know, sort of became this, this, you know, conspiracy theory, anti-Semitic, ultra-conservative, and, you know, like he's the, the heart. And so there are ways that, and this would have been even truer for people in the time who would have known Bill Hartnell as the bad guy. There are all of these signals that we're getting off the doctor that he's on the run. But if you take those signals away, if you take all the historical context and the non-verbalized signals away, the doctor is actually speaking to the meddler on behalf of the establishment. Yeah, uh, no, that, that is interesting in this episode. Like he is taking what we would think of as the establishment position, despite the fact that he is um, a renegade. Yeah. Now, of course, people wouldn't have associated that with the position of the establishment in that historical time, because this is clearly, um, you know, subtly pro-decolonization. Uh, so you've uh, so there's this funny way that but the doctor does appear to be speaking for the mainstream. It's suggested the meddler is not the mainstream on Gallifrey and the doctor's drift from the mainstream is really slow because Pertwee's doctor does go to work for them. Baker's doctor keeps working for them, although they call on him less and less. But then 1978, somebody more important than the Time Lords makes him their agent. Um, so the doctor actually often does appear to be an agent of higher authority in terms of a plain reading of the script. It's just that the show is clearly decided the doctor is some sort of maverick. It's very sort of, it's a, you know, in, in some ways the show might be situated politically the way you'd situate a David Brooks column. <laughs> now, um, I wanted to ask, I've got a few sort of questions about where we might go. Um, I think at some point in the course, we're going to need to discuss slowness. And today could be that day. Or we could talk about um, the monks, the pacifism, and the fact that the doctor interrogates this guy at sword point. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm interested, there's like a very... Yeah, go on. It hits one of the Vikings over the head and knocks him out. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something Trenton's doctor is going to do. <laughs> no. 
but anyway, I'm interested. Just um, a quick up or down vote. Uh, who wants to go to slowness and who wants to go to monks and pacifism? Slowness? Monks and pacifism. All right, let's go to the monks and the pacifism. So um, we see throughout uh, original Doctor Who, uh, monks come off pretty well. And uh, that doesn't need to be the case. Um, it's not like the Church of England has a positive view of monks. Uh, so... I'm interested, how do people feel about the treatment of violence and the treatment of monks and possible interactions? You mean from the show? Yeah. Oh. Um, well, I found it all um, interesting, but I didn't catch the fact that the priest was um, the boss. Um, and I think it must have come out in the fourth episode, but I thought, um, no, I, I thought it was uh, done quite well. However, I didn't think that the girl colleague was very strong. I thought she was kind of, um, I'm here so that you have someone to talk to, as opposed to I'm here because I matter and I'm going to help you make decisions. Yes, no, this is, uh, Maureen O'Brien is really the first screaming and ex exposition companion. Uh, you know, we get that, uh, we'll get that again with Katie Manning as uh, Joe Grant, but in terms of like pure screaming and exposition, um, it's Vicky, Victoria, and Joe who, um, epitomize these uh virtues i mean i, I was thinking of the uh, of the mentias actually because i mean they're not technically monks but they are are sort of monk-like in many of their features and uh and i was also thinking about uh you know going back to douglas adams and um you know, he always had a fairly positive view of, of, of monks in a certain strange way as well. So uh, it, it's interesting that, that um, the doctor, that they have a relatively positive view of characters like that. Although this particular one is obviously not, um, but the the interactions between the villagers and the monks were quite interesting because they they were obviously very pro monk and uh, yeah so that that was quite interesting but I, yeah I did think that Hartnell's um, Hartnell's level of physical violence was a lot higher than we're used to from modern doctors especially for an old guy. Well, that's the thing. It's always desperate violence with Hartnell's doctor. Whereas like Pertwee, Colin Baker, John Pertwee clearly uh, perpetrate more violence uh, than Hartnell's doctor. But with them, there's like, sometimes it's like gratuitous and inappropriate. Whereas with Hartnell, it's always desperate. 
It's just desperate violence. Um, so uh, anyway, I guess part of what I'm getting at here is um, we'll see this in uh, the, uh, the Time Warrior with the Sontarans later. Um, we'll see this throughout. Um, monks will keep showing up in Doctor Who every couple of years. And all of those monks always comply with their vows and are well thought of by those near them. And um, that might not seem that weird in North America where aesthetically normative Christianity is Catholicism. So even though the main religion here is evangelical Protestantism, um, all TV shows show Roman Catholicism in church, even black churches. Uh, the number of black Catholics on TV, I think, actually exceeds the number of black Catholics in the American population. Uh, so there's um, so like here we do have this sense of Catholicism as normative because of the processes of assimilation we talked about last episode. But that's not what's going on in England. Like um, Enoch Powell had a few words to say about Catholics. And so um, the consistently overwhelmingly positive portrayal of monks and ascetic orders in Doctor Who is a weird thing. So uh, uh, anyway, I, I wonder about that. I have no good explanation. Um, but I also wanted to ask about the violence and how it altered our sense of the doctor as character. Um, sometimes when Hartnell's doctor uses violence, it's appropriate and sometimes it's not. Did we feel like um, the doctor's use of violence here? Um, how did it make us feel about, uh, about him as this um, sort of affable old guy hero he is in the early interactions with Vicky at the start of episode one? He, he struck me as affable, but not affable. Does that make any sense? Like his appearance, his appearance was affable. I'm a nice, lovely, quiet old man, but wait till I open my mouth and then you'll find out I'm not a quiet, gentle old man. That was the impression that I got um, and it was good. I liked it because if I were a gentle, quiet old man, I wouldn't be running around in a box going from place to place. So Michael, you're a big Pertwee fan. Uh, Pertwee obviously has the most physical moves on people. How did you feel about um, the first Doctor's violence in this episode? Uh, I, I thought it was all right. Uh, I had never seen this episode before, so it was a little surprising to me because usually he stays away from that. But um, I like it when Hartnell's Doctor is like interfering and mischievous and taking more direct action in the story. So uh, I, I kind of liked it. it. It is rare, though. It's extremely rare. Well, I mean, uh, it's a positive portrayal of the actual monks, not the fake one. All right, I think we've got uh, time to briefly talk about slowness. So, slowness. What I mean by that is um, this 
actually they're making 46 to 50 episodes a year right now. They're like filming them on this breakneck schedule. But an irony of that is that nothing ever gets tightened up. Uh, you get this thing where because people are having to write quickly, plots in shows end up moving slowly. Um, that's uh, it's a paradox of the process, right? The amount of plot development per episode of a daily soap opera is way less than the amount of plot development in a weekly soap opera. So one of the things about the material conditions and labor conditions around the show is that, as Michael said, this would have been a, this would have been pretty good in 45 minutes. Now, but a weird thing has happened to me in recent years, which is that I get tired watching current Doctor Who and these other hyper-efficient shows. I actually don't want, I don't want everything to be like a Coen Brothers movie minus the profundity. Um, it's like, yeah, let's just pack in 80 references to different things per minute, uh, but just because we can, not because we're saying something deep. And so I find current Doctor Who um, hard to watch sometimes when it's too fast. And I have found myself going back to other times in, in television because, I mean, one of the forces that makes Doctor Who slow sometimes is the labor conditions. But the other thing is best expressed by George in the pitch episode of Seinfeld, where they're interrogating this. What do you mean the show's about nothing? It's about nothing! Um, but what happens in an episode? Nothing happens. Well, well, why are people watching it? Because it's on TV. Not yet. But um, why are people watching it? Because it's on TV. We used to have so little choice that we would watch things because they were on TV. And there are all kinds of extraordinary things that I would not have watched in the present that I watched because television forced me to. Um, I remember sitting in a hotel in Portland when I was 12 um, and just watching a cable access show about people attacking grand pianos with firearms for two hours. Um, it was unvoiced, unscripted, improvisational. Uh, and then it ended eventually um, by surprise because it just stopped playing. Uh, but um, one of the things about that is that there are certain kinds of film that we'll have nostalgia for that we wouldn't tolerate today. There are those, those independent films you'd go to in the 90s to look cool. Um, and, and you'd sit there, you know, eating the chapati or the popcorn with the brewer's yeast or whatever it was. And it's like, and because you forced yourself through this ordeal that was not fun, um, you saw something profound that you would not otherwise have seen. I think in addition to that, after the Cold War, um, 
Melanchondera abandoned Czech and began writing in French, having lived as a Czech refugee in France for 15 years. And the first book he wrote in his new language was called Slowness. And it was talking about um, forms of art that demand slowness and the danger of losing that. Um, and I th it's an interesting choice by Kundera because he's trying to intervene in a debate he's about to lose. Because if you look at Soviet Cold War film, um, its aesthetics are strongly based on slowness. That slowness is a property where you have like Soviet artists and French artists competing with each other to deliver to people. A narrative form that, that instead of accelerating your experience of narration in life, slows it down. Uh, I remember seeing the film uh, Sunday in the Country with you, Alana, in 1991. Um, and it's just like a, a set of French people going to a farm and nothing happening. Why are we watching it? Because it's on TV. Well, in this case, it was in a very comfortable theater. Uh, but I think that's one of the things we're going to have to wrestle with, with old Doctor Who. Because it's such an old show, although the episodes do speed up with time, because of what it's gotten away with in the past, there is this sort of height of the Cold War slowness aesthetic that might at any point show up and disrupt the show. Um, to just make the show start wallowing in some location because slowness is a thing that we do demand. Now, when I... Wow, Solaris, Slacker, and Stalker. That is, um, that is some great word association in the chat, folks. But thank you for making the point. The... Um, the slowness, like it was a physical feat that we performed to look less ridiculous as kids. It made us look more so. But in a way, that was the point where we had a choice about slowness, where the Soviet Union had fallen and everything was going to speed up now. So uh, ships is on fire every day. Uh, so um, anyway... Uh, I think that that's that's my slowness spiel. Interested in people's reactions, Manoa first. All right, Joey. Well, to bring a term uh, that would be from around the time of this Doctor Who episode, uh, Thimor, Dead Time, which would be in Antonioni's films. And of course, Antonioni would be known to the people making this film at the time because, of course, La Ventura took the world by storm in 1960. Uh, certainly in the art world. Um, and, you know, you see Antonio Oni uh, influences in um, several of Doctor Who's um, serials. Um, and the thing is, part of that is the pacing. Antonio Oni is deliberately slow. Uh, Antonio Oni uses this dead time to bring out the character uh, and also trying to delve deeper into the character. But also sometimes just the new way of you know, why are we here? Um, so it's it's sort of a lost art to a point. I mean, Tarkovsky in uh, dealing with this in Stalker or Solaris or The Silence, 
was the last really the, uh, major filmmaker to really go at it in a hard way. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's a, a type of pacing that if you're not used to it, it's generally lost in a younger audience. I mean, I'm in my 50s, so I don't mind watching that. But if you show that to someone who's in their 20s, it's excruciating. And, I, I'm not, and I'm not even talking about watching experimental films like Michael Snow's La Région de Central, which is three hours of a camera just shooting uh, a mountaintop in Quebec, uh, which I didn't mind watching. I've seen it about five times. Or, um, you know, Wavelength, which is uh, roughly sort of a 45-minute zoom. Um, I find that the attention span is just not there anymore. And it's partially due to fast-paced cutting that came from music videos in the 1980s and 1990s. So um, that aspect of this particular episode, the fact that it was kind of slowish in that respect, I, I don't mind. Um, although I think, again, efficiencies could have uh, could have happened again. And you're pointing out that you know the writers had very little time to actually write this. So, of course, in order to do that, they used stalling tactics. But the concept of temp more is not bad. And it's just that um, I think it would be lost on a modern audience. I think Jonathan may have a bizarre anecdote for us to close out with, but I'll go to Michael first and then we'll, we'll get the, the chef's bizarre anecdote. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I, I totally agree with you that there is a lost art to slowness in this visual medium. And, um, you know, I, I went to the Cinematheque over the course of five days to watch all four parts of the 1965 Soviet version of War and Peace, which clocked in at 10 hours. And let me tell you, that 10-hour War and Peace moved at a faster pace than this episode of Doctor Who. So it's entirely possible that this is not part of the slowness movement. It's just shitty pacing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't suggest that the slowness was highly self-conscious here. I think it was largely driven out of labor exigencies. I think what permitted it to be on screen was a slowness aesthetic. But, uh, but yeah, the um, uh, so Jonathan says that uh, he knew someone who fell in love with Tarkovsky. Well, I, you know, don't want to tell extensive stories about other people's experience. I just saw this happening. I found Soliaris painfully slow and derivative <laughs> and preferred the American remake. And she really didn't. And then we discovered Stalker and Stalker was even, even more a favorite. And the reasons are convoluted and personal and probably wouldn't survive a, an explanation, except to say that there's a reason why in a previous joke, I paired Tarkovsky with Bill Burroughs as a topic for uh, discussions. Wow. Well, that is, uh, yeah. So I think that, um, I don't think that Doctor Who does any pioneering of slowness. I think it's more that Doctor Who takes advantage of slowness uh, in, order to, um, in order to deal with its um, constantly exigent labor situation. Uh, it's, um, anyway, uh, this is, uh, this is most of what I, uh, wanted to cover, uh, today. I think we've, we've got through, um, 
uh, a decent amount of uh, a decent amount of stuff. I'm trying to remember if there's anything that changed today with respect to the institute, but I don't uh, don't think so. Um, I think we're Okay, so let's talk about next uh, episode, March 29th. Um, so Colin Baker finally shows up. Uh, a few words on um, 19, the 1984 season. This is the season that got Doctor Who canceled the first time. Uh, Doctor Who would again be canceled five years later. Uh, but uh, the first cancellation of the show um, was following this season. Um, that stated, I think Vengeance and Veros holds up. I think Syl the Intergalactic Slug is a great villain. Um, I think uh, the fact that Doctor Who is basically predicting a bunch of reality TV that hasn't happened yet in 1984 is pretty impressive. Um Colin Baker really still is terrible, though. Uh, like, there, there's no getting around that. Um, and Perry is not a particularly compelling companion, especially because Nicola Bryant has never done an American accent before getting this job. And uh, that uh, that presents some well, difficulties, too. Uh, anyway, I didn't think that was the worst part of her acting, actually. <laughs> um so uh the thing i want to say about um uh, about the episode is that it's the only season 1984 is the only season in which the episodes are 45 minutes long and not 23 minutes long so as we've just been talking about pacing um Note that there is different pace to this show, that um, this is much more like a two-parter in the new series than it is like a four-parter in the old series. Um, so that's somewhat worth noting. Um, anyway, just uh, just enjoy the show. It's, uh, it's, it's the best of a bad lot and uh, might actually be good. Uh, but I'll be interested in your opinion as to whether it's possible for Colin Baker, Doctor Who, to be good. So uh, I'll see you Monday. Not possible. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, folks. Yeah.